0: Hey everybody, it's great to see you. I just love that last verse that was read to us. Here's what's astounding. That man, catch this, was more than 40. What that's incredible. (laughs) I'm not quite 40 yet, so I just wanted to rub that in for everybody who is. I could sing that refrain we just sang over and over and over again. There's something good about singing singing exactly that. God, you're so good, you're so good to me. Sometimes we need to sing it a couple of times to convince ourselves and then we remember his goodness, we recall his goodness, we sit reflecting long enough to just to sing that as praise back to God. You are so good, you know. The reason I'm a pastor is because I was confronted with the radical grace of Jesus. And I wanted others to know about that grace because I believe that people everywhere desperately need that grace, and and what sharpens my focus is the conviction that Jesus is the only one who offers that grace and can forgive them and heal them and ultimately save them. And I've I've come to discover that there are a small handful of objections to Christianity um, that are particularly problematic and offensive to those I'm trying to reach with the gospel. And, 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 and so, um, none of those is greater than the objection to the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ is, is the Christian belief that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So, we're going to spend the entirety of our time together today looking at just that, because that's exactly what the Apostle Peter says in verse 12, Do you recognize that tension, by the way, in in your own life, in those you've interacted with who, who don't know Jesus, who are uninterested in the gospel, this claim of Christianity that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Have you ever run into that, rubbed up against that? It's a challenging belief. But look at what Peter says in Acts 4 verse 12. Peter proclaims, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I want us to look at the exclusivity of Christ with our time today, and we're going to look at it in four ways. First, we're going to look at the exclusivity problem second, the exclusivity claim, third, the exclusivity posture, and fourth, the exclusivity response. When I say the exclusivity problem, I, I'm talking about the environment in our context where um, you can't have an exclusive belief. Or, um, but then we're, we're going to move on from there and talk about the claim of Christianity that, that is precisely that, makes an exclusive truth claim. But third, even while holding this exclusive truth claim, I want us to um, still understand a particular posture that we as, as Christians should have, even while holding an exclusive view about truth. And then finally, I will invite you to a response to the exclusivity of Jesus. So first, let's look at the exclusivity problem. You know this, we live in a pluralistic society. I'm going to be talking about that a lot. And so just just to make sure we're all on the same page, a pluralistic society is, is a society filled with diverse people who hold diverse beliefs and values and where tolerance for that diversity is typically paramount in a pluralistic society. Meaning you can be Muslim, you can be a Christian, you can be Buddhist, or you can be an atheist and not be ostracized or persecuted for it. You are welcome to hold those views in, in this diverse culture. There is, however, typically a moral code in pluralistic societies, which is that we should never claim that our view is correct and other views are incorrect. Herein lies some of the tension. Pluralism is seen as inclusive, and it's politically incorrect to make an exclusive truth claim. It's even seen as unkind, unloving, bigoted, even hateful. And so, so here's some of the tension that you may well feel while believing the historic Christian view that, that Jesus is the way of salvation, while recognizing that that's not necessarily a message that gets a lot of traction or respect in our society. But the, wor- the world Christianity was actually born into was a pluralistic one. The Romans had perfected this, and throughout all of human history this has always been the fundamental faith question, is there one way or are there multiple ways to God? And if there's one way, how can we be sure which truth claim is the truth? And the reason that this question has been asked for thousands of years is because it gets to the core of what's wrong with the world and ourselves and what it is that will fix it. And so it's this probing question that continues to be asked. So this isn't a new question by any means, and it's not a question that the early church didn't have to deal with. The 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 Greeks and the Romans were fine with you worshiping Jesus, so long as you sacrificed to local idols and acknowledged the emperor as a god. But for this very reason is why Christians were persecuted in the early church, and many still to this day, because they would not acknowledge anyone or anything as God except Jesus. They were persecuted for holding this exclusive view. In 2015, a horrific video circulated online detailing the, the brutal executions of 21 Egyptian Christians by the Islamic State. The video, which I don't recommend you watch, showed ISIS soldiers marching these Christian martyrs to the seashore. then. With swords in hand, the ISIS captors made the Christians kneel down and gave them a chance to recant their Christian faith. Remaining true to the convictions that they held, however, none of these men would recant. In response, their captors systematically beheaded all 21 of these brothers and sisters, brothers in Christ of ours, as they quietly mouthed, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. Their crime was they were people of the cross who believed that Jesus was the only way of salvation. Now, the primary arguments against exclusivity in a pluralistic society, from what I can tell, are the following two claims. One, that faith belongs in the category of subjective truth, not objective truth. And, and, and the other being that, that the idea that all paths lead to salvation. I just want us to mull these over and unpack them a little bit together. Now, there's a source of disagreement as old as time between married couples. Are you aware of this? Um, what, what typically happens in a road trip or, or just when the married couple are at home together is um, typically the wife will say, it is freezing in here. And the husband will say, it's actually quite warm. Now here's the question, is it, is it warm or, or is it freezing? When the objective statement is being made, it's freezing, is it? Or it's warm, is it? What I'm talking about is really a subjective view. It feels cold to me. And the other person says, it feels warm to me. This might be a roommate issue maybe you have as well. This is a common household conversation. Now, what, what's being stated there are, are, are subjective perspectives on the temperature. There is a thermostat somewhere that has the precise temperature, and it gives us the answer of whether it's freezing, whether it's warm, or whether it's piping hot. So, does faith belong in the subjective or objective category? That's a fair question. Are our religious beliefs like describing whether it feels hot or feels cold to us, or are our religious beliefs more like the thermostat that tells us it is literally freezing or literally scorching? Well, the problem with the notion of faith as subjective is that while Christians find their beliefs, yes subjectively meaningful, the central event of the Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead metaphorically, but but bodily in time and space in history. Meaning, Jesus Jesus either, he, he, he rose or he didn't. The resurrection of Jesus is an objective, historical event, one you can reject or one that you can dispute, but not one that can be dismissed and put into the subjective category. Are you tracking with me? See, Peter and John in our text are on trial, not because they're teaching about some religious ideas, but about the physical resurrection of Jesus and its implications for salvation. See, see, faith cannot fall merely into the subjective category. It falls under an object, whether it's objectively true or not. And, and like I said, um, another primary argument against exclusivity in a pluralistic society is this idea that all paths lead to God. Now, our culture, admittedly, I think we're all aware of this, our, our culture is more comfortable with, with the blind men and the elephant analogy. Many of you have heard this, the idea that there are multiple blind men, each feeling a different part of the elephant, and they're describing what the elephant is like, and, and, and all of their descriptions are different, and where each religion represents a blind man touching a different part of an elephant, never having the whole picture. That's the analogy. And what, what, what happens in this analogy is it positions those who take the pluralist position as having the full view of the elephant. In other words, what the pluralist is able to say in telling that story is they're not blind and they have the vantage point that seeing the Muslim and the Christian, the Jewish believer and the, the Buddhist, all blindfolded, touching tail, trunk, leg, right, and those sorts of things. But the pluralist is able to look and see all that happening and say, oh, look, you all are getting a piece of it, but not the full picture. Meaning all paths, all, all of these descriptors are, are, are all partially true, and, and they all can coexist together. Now, ironically, of course, this position leads to its own truth claim. In fact, the pluralism perspective finds itself steeped in the same intolerance and exclusivity that it despises and rejects, which is this, we know the truth, and it is found in a little bit of every religion, that part and that part, that piece and that piece, you're a little bit right and you're a little bit right, but that itself is a truth claim, and the invitation that the pluralist pluralist is giving is embrace that truth claim, live that one. Now the challenge is for for, for logic's sake, there's something called the law of non-contradiction and here's how it works. I know this is very heady, we're gonna get cruising here in in a minute. Here's how it works, the law of non-contradiction. If premise one states that a piece of fruit is an apple and premise two states that the same piece of fruit is an orange, you cannot say both premises are true. Are we following, are we tracking, right? It is one or the other. It cannot be both. So, so taking that into account for religion, certain strands of Buddhism believe that there is no God, whereas Muslims believe there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Look, both can be wrong, but the law of contradictions would tell us both cannot be right. Jewish people believe that Jesus is not the Messiah and Savior promised in the Old Testament. Well, Christians believe that he is. The law of non-contradiction tells us that both cannot be true. Christians, Muslims, and Jews believe in one creator, God. Pantheists believe in many gods. Atheists believe in no God. If the atheist is right about reality, every belief system in God or gods is wrong. And by the way, in this regard, atheists themselves then hold exclusive religious beliefs. There is no God. But the law of non-contradiction would say they cannot all be true. It cannot be no gods, one god, or many gods. Moving on, not all religions talk about an afterlife. Mainly only the the monotheistic ones do. The pantheistic ones are reincarnation. And so the law of non-contradiction tells us that both cannot... Be true. So here's some concluding statements just to tie this all up before we move on. One, the statement that all religions are true or all paths lead to God is a, is a logical impossibility. Two, the vast majority of the world's population would consider themselves part of a religion that holds to exclusive beliefs about reality which is a challenge to the pluralist because they come along and claim that all religions are true or are ultimately the same, and it sounds sounds kind and accommodating on the surface, but in reality it's deeply offensive and arrogant in the eyes of most of the world. To say to Muslims that they ultimately believe the same thing as Buddhists is to insinuate that what they believe is trivial, and it implies that the actual content of their beliefs is unimportant interchangeable so what it's doing is it's actually imposing a pluralistic view of religion that's held by a small elite minority of people in recent history on all these ancient and diverse religious traditions Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a great book called confronting Christianity and to this in this regard she says this to claim that Hinduism and Christianity are ultimately compatible is to do violence to both So so this notion that all paths lead to God is a very problematic one. So let's move on to the exclusivity claim of Christianity that says this isn't merely a subjective faith view. It's making an assertion about an objective reality that is true for all. In the first century, the message of Jesus spread in a multicultural spiritually pluralistic environment and in the midst of these diverse cultures the New Testament unapologetically presents Jesus as the only way to God Jesus right the, the one who told the paralyzed to get up and walk who told the blind to see the mute to speak who made the leper clean who calmed the stormy seas who raised the dead to life showed through his miracles and declared in his own words what he says in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we as followers of Jesus don't get to land somewhere else on this. We take Jesus at his word, have experienced his saving grace in our own lives, and are called and commissioned to share it with the world, no matter the consequences. Now, in our text, the apostles aren't in trouble because they've, they, they have some privately held beliefs that Jesus rose from the dead. They're in trouble. They're, 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 they're captured. They're arrested because they've convinced roughly 10,000 others to believe as well to this point point. and that there's no other name under heaven by which they may be saved. In Acts 4 our text, in light of healing a man who had been paralyzed since birth, Peter proclaims that there's no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. This statement, this statement we're looking at today confronts our cultural preferences. It's absolute and it's unaccommodating. It's narrow and it's exclusive. What are we to do with that? Listen, I I would actually argue, though, you might chuckle at this, but I would argue that the claims of Christianity are the most inclusive kind of exclusivity there is. I would argue that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. Now remember, the pluralism perspective finds itself steeped in the same intolerance and exclusivity that it despises and rejects. It it posits claims that all are true and things like that. So let me try and flesh this out for you in a really practical way. Are you still tracking with me? No. Okay. (laughs) All right. I've been asked this question a lot. It's a very serious question. How can you believe in a God who sends people to hell. Now, I'd like to use that as a case study for us. I'm gonna try and show you how Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. Starts with a conversation like this. How can you believe in a God who sends people to hell? I usually respond to that question with another question do you think anybody goes to hell? Now, sometimes they'll say, I don't think hell exists. Only a, a terrible God would, would create a place like hell. But many people will say, well, yeah. Like the majority of poli- people believe there's a God and believe there's a heaven and believe there's a hell. The majority of people really do. And so the question becomes, okay, do you believe anybody goes to hell? And, and, and with the conversation, they might say, well, if there was a hell, well, yeah, or, or yeah, I think there's a hell, and who's there? Well, Hitler's probably there. Charles Manson's probably there. And so, now we're starting to have a conversation. What? That, okay, if there's a hell, certain people are there, certain types of people are there. Okay. So, it's, it's not like you wouldn't understand God sending anyone to hell. It's, it's more a conversation about who goes to hell then, right? So then the next question is, so what are the criteria for those who go to heaven and for those who go to hell? What's the criteria for that? You're saying that if there's a hell, sure, certain kinds of people are there. What's the the criteria for that? And suddenly now you're in a serious conversation about hell, about who God is, about accountability to him and alienation from him. So usually I get far enough where we can say, okay, so we do agree that if there is a God and some people go to heaven and some people go to hell, who goes to hell? Usually there's some sort of a scenario that goes like this. Well, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, right? And and we might differ on on what good is and what bad people is. Essentially, the worst of the worst are in hell and most others are in heaven. And certainly I would be going to heaven, right? Anybody having this conversation is like, well, I don't know. As good as me, that's, I guess that's the, <laughs> the line. Look, and you can say that. You can say all good people go to heaven, all bad people go to hell. That sounds very gracious, right? Sounds very loving until, until you realize, wait a minute, and this is me speaking, wait a minute, what about us bad people? I'm your pastor and I'm literally asking the question about good people going to heaven, bad people going to hell. Yeah, but what about a bad person like me? What then? And not only that, what about about those who grew up in an abusive home? Or those who never experienced a loving family, who, who never had models of love and character and goodness, never shown to them. How are they to be the good people? How, are they, how have they ever been shown how to be the good people who go to heaven and only the bad people go to hell? And what about those in such broken homes that it's, okay, so it's inevitable? They'll just grow up bad and then they go to hell? Can I just tell you about the most inclusive exclusivity on the planet? See, see at this point, when I'm talking to someone who's saying, if there's a hell, okay, fine, good people go there, bad people don't, I look at them and say, you're being too exclusive. You say, good people get in and bad people are left out. I'm a Christian, and I believe that anybody, anybody who asks for the mercy of Jesus Christ, the abusive person and the abused person, the prostitute and the pimp, the murderer and the criminal who hung on a cross beside Jesus. I would say that the people who are humble enough to ask for a savior are in. They're all in. And only those too proud are out. Such as the council that put Peter and John before them. Look, everybody's exclusive in some way, and I actually feel like my exclusivity, the exclusivity of Christianity, is a more inclusive exclusivity than yours. That being said, I don't want there to be a sniff of arrogance in any of that. I want us to look at the exclusivity posture. It's the three Cs, character, competency, and chemistry. No, wait, those are the wrong three Cs. Here they are. Conviction, courage, and compassion. As followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the only way. And we should believe that with conviction. It's not going to be on the screen, I don't think, but let me just pick up our text in verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, verse 19, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's the conviction of Peter and John. If we have to choose between obeying you and obeying God, we choose God. This is important for Christians to understand. We obey authorities. We obey those in authority over us, except when obeying authorities would cause us to disobey the explicit commands of God. Peter and John got this conviction right, and so should we. But not only did they have conviction, they also had courage. I want to jump back to some verses we looked at last week, verse 8 of chapter 4. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And I mentioned this last week. Peter was speaking to an audience of the wealthiest, most intellectual, and most powerful in the land. And this is also the same group that sent Jesus to his death. And this is also the same Peter who, like maybe a 100 days earlier, denied Jesus three times during Christ's trial out of fear for his own life. But now Peter, the uneducated Galilean fisherman, is filled with the Holy Spirit and with courage and speaks boldly. Such courage. What happened to him? He was filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore he was courageous and spoke with clarity to his accusers. Question for you. What are the relationships in your life where you don't feel smart and courageous enough to share the gospel in? The encouragement of our text is to pray and pray often for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Before the pandemic, I used to go for breakfast meetings like a lot. And it was just a good way to get the day started and meet with people that I needed to meet with. And typically at a good breakfast place, you all know this. The servers come around regularly and ask if you want your coffee topped up. And just a confession about myself, in those circumstances, I never say no. It's like they come around and they're like, can I top up? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Until I, it's, I'm finally leaving and then it's, it's done. It, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that Peter hadn't already been filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, he preached this incredible sermon to a crowd and people came to faith. But it was a fresh filling of the Spirit. It was a filling for that moment of the Spirit. Encouragement to continue to pray, to continue to say, do I have coffee in my cup? Yes. But I wouldn't mind a fresh filling. And the Holy Spirit's the same. What are those relationships in your life where there's fear about sharing Jesus, where you don't feel smart enough to share Jesus, where you don't feel like you have the courage to share Jesus. The invitation is pray and pray and pray for fresh filling of the Spirit that you would have courage to do so. The third piece is compassion. Look, the call for Christians isn't to impose the exclusivity of Christ onto others. It isn't to impose the gospel on others, but to share it with others. Some, like the council in this text, won't welcome such testimony of Jesus and they're left to go their own way with its consequences. Others, however, will embrace the gospel for what it is, the greatest news imaginable. So here we see the apostles making their gospel appeal but leaving the decision and consequences to the hearers to decide. There's a certain freedom in that. There's a certain lightness about that that we can have. Should we share Jesus with others? Yes but we share it, we don't impose it. Now, even though we live in a pluralistic society, there there are certain moral codes, and if you break them, you get canceled, right? This whole idea of cancel culture. Now, Christian, you shouldn't have anything to do with cancel culture. It's a contradiction to the gospel. You may find yourself canceled, but you should not cancel. Jesus died for those who rejected him. And part of what it means to live as Christians in our context is to resist the cultural tendency to dismiss those we disagree with. Oh, we don't see eye to eye on this. We can't even be friends. Christians should should live in our context resisting that cultural tendency. And saying, I can hang out with you, even though we disagree on this and this. I can believe in the exclusivity of Jesus while you don't. And we can still hang out together. I've been struck uh, freshly again by what Jesus um, said, in, in, or what it says of Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 36. When it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Look, Jesus had this incredible ability to embrace people, like messy people. He didn't need to embrace their beliefs to embrace them. But profoundly, what would happen is that he would embrace them in ways that they had never experienced before, and it led them to embrace him and his message. Think about Zacchaeus, and think about the Samaritan woman at the well. And one of the things that that I lament about in our time is that I find that a lot of Christians want to be right more than they want to be righteous. Righteous. They want to be right more than they want to be light. But the great motivator of the Christian is that we can be around those who disagree with us on the exclusivity of Jesus and be quite striking to them as we embrace them like Jesus did and love them wonderfully and never cancel them. See, the great motivator of Christian compassion is love. I I was unlovely and unlovable and Jesus pursued me with his love. I didn't have what it took to save myself, so Jesus gave everything of himself to save me. Look, that's what fuels our compassion for others. We know our own failings, and Jesus looked upon us with compassion. What that does is it frees us to be compassionate toward others. Look, we believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We believe there is salvation in no one else, and that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, And we should share that truth with conviction, courage, and compassion. Just want to share lastly, quickly, the exclusivity response. How should we respond to the exclusivity of Christ? First, I want to invite you to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. Look, Peter, having condemned his hearer's sin in verse 10, when he looks at them and he's like, you crucified Jesus. He goes on in verse 12 to offer them the gospel. Inviting them to call upon the only name that saves. And I want to ensure I afford the same opportunity to all of you. To call on Jesus' name. That's how we're saved. Have you called upon the name of Jesus for rescue? Have you invited him to be your savior, literally your rescuer? Have you invited him to be the Lord of your life, your, your, your master, the one who, who rules you? Have you trusted in him for the promises that he offers of forgiveness of sin, healing of your brokenness, and everlasting life? Have you called upon the name of Jesus? Listen, you can do that right now and I would love to hear about that. I I would love for you to let me know if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, whether in the room here tonight or if you're watching at home. I wanna celebrate that with you and encourage you and pray for you, and I would love to hear about that. For everyone else, those who have given their lives to Jesus, here's my final encouragement. I invite you to live like you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. I just invited those who may have never turned their life to Jesus to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. Christian, I wanna invite you to actually live like you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus because many of us live like Jesus isn't the only way. Back in the 1960s in Queens, New York, a young woman by the name of Kitty Genovese was stabbed outside her apartment building where many witnesses could hear her cries for help, but no one, no one ran to, her, ran to her rescue or called the police until it was too late. Asked why they didn't help, they all answered, I thought someone else would. Here's the thing. If you think that there are others that can help, you probably won't. Universalism is the belief that everyone will make it in the end and that there's no ultimate danger of hell for people. Pluralism is the belief that many different religions, belief systems, or worldviews will lead to God. But here's the thing. Universalism and pluralism kill mission. If you hold those viewpoints, you will not help the helpless. I mean, why would you? They'll be all right but what are we to make of Jesus' own words as Jesus' followers? And what are we to make of the ministry of the early apostles? All of them except for John were brutally martyred and they tried boiling John, the only one who wasn't actually killed. They tried boiling him to death, but he lived, and so then they banished him to a prison island. If they believed there was no hell, or that everyone would ultimately make it in the end, they wouldn't go out on mission. They'd just go home. One of the great tragedies of the Christian church in our place and time is that most of us live like functional pluralists and universalists. This sermon today is an urgent plea for us to wake from our slumber, What are we doing? Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Look, I think we need to spend less time asking the question of what will happen to those who never hear the gospel and more time fulfilling the great commission Jesus gave to us to go to the nations. Look, not that it isn't a fair question or that there aren't deep questions like that that actually don't have really good responses. I'm trying to give time to a big question with our time today. But what I often observe is a lot of, well, what about this or what about that that freezes us and kills mission? Listen, rather than, than listening to the spirit of our age... Let's take Jesus at his word. He is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus went on to say, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. I want to invite us to do that. I want to invite us to do that with conviction and with courage and with compassion. Let me pray for us. Jesus Oh, Jesus, I, I, I confess my own sin in this regard of living as a functional pluralist in a pluralistic society. Lord, you, you, I thank you for the apostles Peter and John who, who who could not but share what they had seen and heard. And Lord, I've encountered you, and I, I must tell others. Lord, I, I ask that. I pray into that, this this. this this belief that that we need to awaken from our slumber and go and tell. Be salt and light. Shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. Oh, Jesus, I pray you'd give us opportunity. I pray you'd give us a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us conviction, courage, and compassion for those that you put before us. That we might embrace them as Jesus embraced sinners and that in turn they would embrace you. In Jesus' name, amen.